Amen. Open up your Bibles to Psalms. We'll look at Psalm 145. So far in this study, uh, we've seen what we must be delivered from. We've discussed why he is capable from his posture and the height that we must be delivered to and how he is able by his power. We talked about his holiness, his absolute holiness. And today we discuss the power of God. And I want to read through all of Psalm 145 as our text. Initially when I wrote this, that wasn't there. Uh, and some might recall the Sunday before we went to Olmstead to do this revival. Uh, I think Steve did the devotion that day out of Psalm 145, and it lined up perfectly with the entire study on the characteristics of God. So I really want to go through and read Psalm 145, and I ask that you make note of verses 3, 6, 14, and 18 as we go, as they, those verses in particular uh, really illuminate some of the aspects of his power. Psalm 145, I will extol thee, David writing, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever and ever. Every day will I bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. Verse 6, And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works, which we saw last time. Verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto all them that call, call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them, which supports Isaiah 33, verse 22, which has been our theme so far. The Lord preserveth all them that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy, which we also saw in the second part of this study. And lastly, verse 21, my mouth, this is David, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Heavenly Father, Lord, as again we return to our study on, the, on your attributes, help us to see you more clearly. Help us to answer one of the difficult questions that we posed in recent weeks. Whom do we say that you are? Help us to understand apologetics, to truly be able to defend our faith, to truly be able to understand who you are and the power of this word, the truth of this word. Help us, Father, to find nuggets to cling to here today. Help us to find truths to praise you for. And, and the most importantly, Father, help us to find reasons to repent. Help us to find our lacking in the areas of our lives in which we need you most right now, this very hour. Help us to fall upon your mercy. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Psalm 62 verse 11 says, God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. We looked this morning at the power of God. A.W. Pink wrote, He who cannot do what he will and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. As God hath a will to resolve what he, seems, what he deems good, so has he power to execute his will. We saw last time how it, is, uh, how it is that the Lord defines good. And let us today discuss more of the power behind his execution. Remember, as we said last time, that his overarching or his most powerful underlying attribute is that of his absolute holiness. So though he is infinitely powerful, which we will see with the three omnis today, these, uh, the execution or the use of this power is all navigated by his absolute holiness. Stephen Carnock wrote, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. The first thing we want to look at is omnipotence. And of course, the three points that we have are omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. And we cannot talk about this subject matter near enough. And even in, in, in a hearty, long message, as I, I tend to give, we will not cover all the aspects of his power. We couldn't possibly hope to fully reveal the majesty of God here. But I hope and pray that we'll have a basic understanding of what these three power sets are and, and why we use the terms that we use. Omnipotence. First, I want to start with Charles Spurgeon, who wrote, God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no butrist throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it, bar nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power. Uh, some here today might have the most powerful car in the parking lot, but without a spark plug. It is nothing. You might have, fill in the blank, of the most obscene amount of power imaginable, but if it's not plugged into the wall, if it's not charged, Livy got a new monster truck, and if it wasn't charged for six hours, it's an impressive-looking toy, but it does nothing. God is not an impressive monster truck. He's not your whatever it is in the parking lot. He has no source of power but himself, and it is infinite. He is omnipotent. We don't have a full understanding of what that is because our entire definition, our entire understanding of power, as Clark and I have talked before, just the observance of such things puts a draw on it. it when we were having trouble with the alternator on the van and we connected all those toys to it to see if it was the battery or the alternator, just a wee bit of juice had to come out of it for us to get any kind of numbers. Just trying to see how powerful it may or may not be, we drew from it. That's not the power that we speak of here today. This means if 
we were capable of physically assessing God's might, we could make no metaphors, no similes as to its grandeur. It cannot be described except great, except absolutes. Why we described his holiness last week as absolute. There's nothing to compare it to. It's not just ten times holiness that we understand from something else. And this is not just ten times or a hundred times or a billion times more powerful than something else. It is the source of all power. And it is infinite. And it draws from nothing. It feeds from nothing. It's not some beautiful stream that is fed by an ocean or a lake. It is its own ocean or lake. And it will never run dry. It's not simply like this or as that, for it all began in him, and it will almost assuredly end in him. He's not like anything that we have ever beheld and not like anything we are ever going to behold. Habakkuk chapter 3, you can turn there with me if you'd like. We're going to read verses 2 through 16 of Habakkuk chapter 3. The prophet writes, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? The bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. Selah. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up up, up, when he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. In the prophet's prayer, he reveals what he refers to as a hiding of his power. And this description then shows the majesty of creation. It shows that the majesty of creation actually conceals more, according to Pink, than they reveal of his infinite might. Let me say that again. The description Habakkuk gives us here conceals more of God's power, of God's might, than it reveals. We might not think that. If we go and we look at the Rockies, if we uh, look upon the Himalayas, if we, uh, if we study Mount Ararat, if we consider the, the great majesties of the universe, 
They literally hide more of his power than they reveal. We cannot possibly understand how truly powerful God is. As inseparable as Jesus is to be in the word of God is how God the Father and power are. Consider what it says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Or comprehended it not. Down in verse 14, it says, And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It speaks of the Lord Jesus and the word as being one. Now consider Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Jesus said, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Who does Jesus sit at the right hand of, even now? Mark tells us in Mark 16, verse 19, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. We see God and power used interchangeably. This is how interconnected power and God are. God literally is power and thankfully ruled by grace, ruled by holiness. But he is interchangeably used with the word power. Inseparable. Secondly, let us consider omniscience. All-knowing, all-seeing, all-aware. Omniscience. We speak of the uh, infinity of his knowledge. And Milburn had written in his book, Omniscience is that attribute whereby God knows himself and all other things in one eternal and most simple act. It is God's perfect and eternal knowledge of all things which are the objects of knowledge, whether they be actual or possible, past, present, or future. Nothing, beloved, is hidden. Nothing is forgotten. Nothing escapes what would have been for him a forethought. We think it's been years since such and such has happened. But if not repented of, he still sees it. It is still before his face. It is still very much in need of repentance. It's very much in need of being addressed. He's all-seeing. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. There is then no creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. He's all-aware. All aware, as Samuel was seeking God's man, that ruddy young David, those of great stature stood before him. Yeah, imagine how many times Samuel thought, this has got to be him. This is a very strong, sturdy-looking farmhand that stands before me. This has got to be the man of God. This has got to be the one who will go before and be the king. Not necessarily the king the people wanted. That's a whole other sermon of how they needed, they desired a king because everyone else had one. But God said, the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Which is another evidence that we'll never truly understand how powerful God is. The Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. That same David told his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, to know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. 
Do you this day have a perfect heart? Do you this day have a willing mind? I'll add to that what we read in the New Testament. Are you, as Paul describes, of no reputation? This is what we're called to be. The Christians were known as uh, almost like terrorists in a way. They were turning the world upside down. They were undoing the synagogues. They weren't freeing the Jews from, uh, from overtaxation and from oppression, but rather they were freeing with truth that was denied by the people. And I ask you here this day, do you have a greater reputation than the gospel? Because Paul talks about a servant's heart. He talks about being of no reputation, and I believe it's defined here in Chronicles by David as having a perfect heart and a willing mind. What's a perfect heart? One that has nothing left to repent of in that hour. Every hour we've got things to repent of. But a perfect heart, as David's writing to his son, is a clean one, an empty vessel, one that is openly and continually repenting before God, I have failed thee. I have failed thee. Forgive me a sinner. Have mercy upon me. And a willing mind. There is nothing more crippling than a willing, uh, an unwilling mind. We can talk about debilitating injuries, debilitating health issues and everything else, but having an unwilling mind is more desperate. It can't really be treated. Now, there's a downward spiral these days with pharmaceuticals that'll treat this, 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 and this, and then give you a whole list of ailments you have to now treat with other medications. An unwilling mind, a locked-up mind, a stubborn mind, a hardened heart, it's rebellion against God. And it certainly can't be paired with a perfect heart because a, a, <laughs> an unwilling mind's not going to be repenting anytime soon. It doesn't feel that it has anything to repent of. Do you have a perfect heart? A willing mind. Are you the first to say, here am I, use me. I am ever willing. I may not be the smartest in the room, the strongest in the room, but if there is a need, let me be used. More difficult questions. More difficult questions for Christians. Third and lastly, let us consider omnipresence. A short definition is that God is everywhere present at the same time. Everywhere present at the same time. To explain it more fully, we must understand that God was present outside of space before he made space. I'll let that one simmer for a minute. He was present outside of space before he made space. He was also present outside of time before he made time. Can you imagine living the first day knowing that you were creating the first day? I know it's a riddle. But could you just be awed at God for just a moment? On the first day, he made the first day. He decided that day it was going to end with the sun going down and the moon coming up. And all the things that we can go back and recite from Genesis uh, Genesis 1 and see of his creation and of the first week. And the, We're so awed at times of the seventh day of rest, but do you realize that on the first day he made a day? That light be, light was? I mean, that's pretty big. We don't know how to generate that power today. We can make light bulbs, but it has to run through a current. It has to be connected and disconnected, and all of these things have to take place. God didn't have to do all that. He just simply had to organize the atoms into place and then generate them, cause a vibration, as we discussed in our Genesis study. You know, just something little like that. Something that is utterly impossible for man to replicate. That's what he did. And as we've read in other studies recently, when the time has come that he no longer needs the sun, it will retire. 
at his command. It will no longer be needed because the light of the Father and the Son. If that doesn't blow you away, I've got nothing left. I've got nothing left for you to impress you with who God is. And in previously in this study, I, I, I've labored to impress upon you how deceitfully wicked you are. I am. How totally depraved we actually are. How far did we fall? All the way. We're not grappling onto some vines on the side of a cliff. We fell all the way with Adam. And we have to be all the way redeemed by Christ, the second Adam. Or we will not see the kingdom of heaven. What works did the coyote do as he flew off the cliff again going after the roadrunner? We get a good laugh when he pulls out the tiny little umbrella, right? Or holds up a sign saying, yeep or help. I know Lindsay's getting ready to just laugh. But none of it saved him. That's you. That was me. He's plummeting. There's about to be a burst cloud of sand when he hits the ground. But he's falling all the way. And usually, there's a big rock going to fall on top of him when he gets there. That's us. That big rock, it's all our works. Everything the coyote threw up in the air with him to try and catch the roadrunner usually ends up falling right on top of him, right? Those are his works. They didn't prop him up. They didn't save him. They didn't get him to the top of the mountain and certainly didn't get him the roadrunner. It added to his injury. It literally, as it fell upon him, buried him further. More to overcome. How does he overcome it? Repentance. Repentance. Being immutable, we must understand that God not only at some point was outside of space and outside of time, he still is. He still is. This is how big God is, everywhere present at the same time. How could that be? Because he doesn't answer to time and space as we do. He made these things. He called them into existence. He's not bound by them. He won't deviate from them because he's absolutely holy and immutable. But listen to this. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built it. Consider Isaiah chapter 40, verses 22 through 24. It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the heaven, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth, and he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. One might feel at this point compelled to say that it, it is a silly struggle to wrestle with God. A silly struggle to try and rebel against He who can just utter a whirlwind. He who, by just the breath, just blowing upon them, shall cause them to wither. We haven't seen it yet in our study of the Lord's ministry, but think of what he's going to do to that fig tree, as Steve made mention of a couple weeks ago. This is the first that they, those disciples that Steve said, the first that they had ever seen that happen right before their very eyes. He's very much one worthy of our worship. 
very much one in which we should repent to. Every part of space is filled with his entire being. Your prayer closets, as much as your shame closets, where you go to do those deceitful, disgusting, lust-filled things that you don't want the world to know about, he is there. When we get into um, Exodus and Leviticus, we talk a little bit more about sin offerings. We'll, we'll hopefully make this a little bit more clear, but uh, I want you to think about sin offerings as what you have offered unto the Lord that is sinful, that you've offered it before him, because you're his, right? He's jealous over you. You belong to him, you who are born again. You are his, and when you've done something distasteful, when you've done something that you were told to abstain from, told to come out from among, told to have nothing to do with, when you've done things because, well, the Bible doesn't say not to do it, but you don't have a thus saith the Lord to do it. You've taken him with you in a sense. He's there already. But you've said, this is me. This is my Christian service. A workman trying to be unashamed, and this is what I offer unto thee. This thing that I'm taking part in, this, this drinking, this prostitution, this strip club, whatever it might be, I've, I've presented this before you, Father. And he says this is his filth. He says this is disgusting. He says this ought not to be. And part-time Christians all say, well, we were punched out. We weren't supposed to be with you in that hour. That was our time. He who is outside of all space and all time is very much present in all space and all time. And you are his. No matter what space and no matter what time. This is why we can safely say all here have something to repent of. We rejoice when we sing No Never Alone. And then there's times we dread it, isn't there? Oh, we're never alone. He's always there. Always expecting us to live for him. Always expecting us to present the gospel. Yes, he absolutely is. I wonder how it was for, for the disciples who were near enough to see the cross. It was so horrible. So devastating. This one that they loved, this one that they'd followed all over the map, this one that they'd served, this one that had fed them, had led them, had bled for them. You know, sometimes when we, we have horrible things within our eyesight, we look away and hope that when we look back, it's not there. And they still saw him there. No, we're still not alone. He's still upon that cross in that hour. He's still there, dying for the wickedness in my heart that is denying him three times, Simon Peter. He's still there, other disciples who didn't even show. I wonder about John Mark, who's likely that young lad who fled when they took him. I wonder his heart. He's not here anymore in the upper room. He's not here anymore having supper, but he's still on the cross, bearing my shame. As he comes down, as he goes to the tomb, they had dreaded seeing him on the cross. They had dreaded continuing to look at him there on the cross. And then how their hearts sank when the stone was rolled away and he wasn't there anymore. As they received word that he was gone. Did somebody take him? He's not here anymore. He's not present anymore. Imagine how they felt when he appeared unto them again, still bearing the marks. It really happened, Thomas. It really happened, Simon Peter. Do you love me? Jesus wasn't waiting for them to be faithful 
to commit his part of the plan. He wasn't taking the cross before the crown, or the crown before the cross, remember. He had to take the cross first. And he shows them it really happened. I really died for you. Do you love me? Quit with the vain babblings. Quit making excuses as to why you won't follow. Assemble together. Do these things in remembrance of me. Do not forget the fellowship we had around the supper table, he says. Do not forget the lessons that have been taught by God himself in time, in your presence. What a thing to have been one of those disciples. You think you're haunted by the Holy Ghost. Imagine having the Lord Jesus right there. Having him right there when he causes for them to do the math. Can we feed the 4,000? You know, if ever there was a trick question, they just fed the five. And here's, here's the Lord, pop quiz, can we feed the 4,000? You can almost hear Andrew, well, if we carry the one, if we, we part this and we do that. And the answer was, absolutely. You are him. You are him with the words of everlasting life. Where else could they go and be fed? Who else could these be brought to and be healed? You know how anyone else would have treated that woman in Samaria at the well in the heat of the day? Jesus says, give me drink. Jesus converses with a filthy sinner just like you and me. He seals the deal. It is finished. He comes back and says, it is finished. The day salvation was revealed unto Paul, it was similar, wasn't it? I'm the one you persecuted. It's hard to kick against the pricks. It's finished. He tells Ananias that Paul doesn't yet know all the things he'll suffer for Jesus' name. And Jesus, or Paul spends the rest of his ministry telling us the exact same thing. You don't even know what all you will do, what all you will see, what all you will experience for Jesus' own namesake. There's a great many blessings since I've been in the ministry, and I'm, I'm around the anniversary. I don't remember. Rebecca told me. I think it's five years since I was ordained. I think it's what it was. There's a great many blessings I've seen in that time and a whole lot of heartache. And I don't know if Milburn ever talked about it, but I, I believe the pastor's heart is a real thing because there was things as a church member that I didn't have to hurt over. But suddenly when I was pastor, I had no choice. I don't know that as a church member I ever turned around and looked back to see who wasn't there. And now I can't not see it. I don't know how many meals I missed as a church member listening to the pains of my brethren. But as a pastor, I gladly do it. Beloved, we're called to do that for one another because it's real. He went to the cross. He suffered, died, and was buried. He rose again. He bears those marks. As Stephen was martyred, he stood at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of power. We think of him as the intercessor, our intercessor to God. Have you ever thought about what that means in reverse? As the power of God is called to judge fallen man and Jesus has to intercede, he's ours. 
Jesus there at the right hand of, the, of God. He's ours. Stephen cries for the, the, his accusers who were guilty, guilty, guilty of killing him. Have mercy upon them. That's what it's like. As God is walked on by man, rebelled against by man, and Jesus says, have mercy upon them. Or stay thy wrath. The day of judgment is coming. He's not spread thin in any capacity, in any region. He is all, at all time, in all places. He is not the sum of all parts, for we know he has nothing to do with sin. He is distinct from his creation, but as seen in his grace, he is not separate from his creation. We read in Psalm 33, verses 5 and 6, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. The wicked, too, benefit from his creation, though without repentance they perish. Before we close, I want to preview the qualities of God that were present in God the Son's ministry, which we've seen a little bit of in our study already in the afternoons. Though he was 100% man and he was also 100% God, in his ministry upon the earth, um, God the Son did not, he also calmed the waves, he brought forth the dead, he commanded mighty legions of demons, did he not? He also demonstrated supreme power or authority over all flesh. John 17, verses 1 through 3. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, and that, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, that only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. He had power over all actions. Consider what he says to Pilate. As Pilate claims to have the power to crucify him or reverse this, uh, this decision or release him. He says in John 19, 11, Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. This word delivered means be, or is translated elsewhere 40 other times as betrayed. He has the power to commission and the power to grant authority as we saw last time when we were discussing uh, his words to the church as they were answering the question, whom do they say that I am and whom do you say that I am? He also has that commission there in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What a perfect picture of how he is ruled by absolute holiness first. Because here's Jesus saying, I have all power, all authority. Do it. Do what I told you to do. This is what he could have done. Oh, you're not going to do it. Die. You're not going to do it. Out. You're not going to do it. Boom. Gone. But that's not what he does. He says he has all the authority. He has all the power in heaven and earth. And I will be with you always. Absolute holiness. His desire to have a relationship with his beloved. With his elect. Not command them. Not rule them. 
but a relationship with them. This isn't one of them relationships, ladies or gentlemen, in which you're going to persuade him and you're going to control it. He's in control of the relationship, but he has a desire for you, a jealousy over you that you will belong to no one else. You might have to go through some things to get there, but you are his. Again, all power is given. If I were using these words on Isaac to get him to do the dishes, and you probably heard me say it, I'm dad. I pay for the house. I have the jobs. Blah, blah, blah. Brought you into this world like my parents would say. I'll take you out of it. Blah, blah, blah. Also heresy. But I'd exercise power to get him to do what I want him to do. And honestly, I'm not sure I know how to exercise absolute holiness without shaming him. It's because I love you so much. And I know that you want to please your father. Marsha is trying not to look me in the eye right now because she's done this too. But this is God. An immeasurable power that is no comparison to us. And in this form, 100% man, 100% God, in this commission where he has all power in heaven and in earth, he says, I'm going to be with you. That is the greatest exercise of absolute holiness you could possibly even imagine. That you're commanded to do these things and he's going to be everywhere you go. He confirms, I'm there with you, even to the end of the world. And what happens at the end of the world? He comes back! So he's with you for all eternity from then forward. That's power measured out by absolute holiness. In your own studies, consider that, all, that not all has been covered here of God's infinite power. Not only is his great power exercised in creation, but consider the elements that we did not have time to discuss such as preservation of life, planet, and the cosmos. Reservation, his governance of Satan to time and scale, and even of man's own wickedness. You don't think Satan would desire to speed things up a little bit? You don't think man would too? I mean, how many books have there been written over when the end times are coming? I know Eddie has the answer. But how many books have truly been written on man's thoughts and opinions over the end times. His desire for it to be here, for the Lord to come home, which is an admirable desire for the Lord to come and take his people home. But this takes power, does it not, to govern both man and Satan in both time and scale? Man is only ever more wicked, recall, and yet governed by God. Man continues to say that God is failing at preserving life, preserving the planet, preserving the cosmos. You could launch a theory on the internet today that space itself is starting to peel at the corners and in 150 years it'll just peel all the way away like one of them old stickers that's lost its stickiness and we're all going to die. And someone will believe it. But God has preserved my salvation for all time. And God has created all these things for the exact length of time in which he has purposed it. Man is right to a degree. It is coming to an end. It absolutely is coming to an end. But God has not lost control over that. He's very much in control of how it goes. It'll be interesting to see. 
but he's in control of it. These final considerations especially reveal again his holy nature. There's some great magnificent purpose behind why he preserves and why he reserves the way that he does. Let us meditate upon that over the coming weeks. Why is God regulating his own power in such ways? I think you'll find the answer to be mercy.